I invite you to take out your Bibles and your bulletins and turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Uh, we're week two in a brand new sermon series that we started last week. Kind of a new series for a new year. Uh, and the series is entitled The Gospel That Changes the World. And last week, Pastor Matt opened our series in Acts chapter 13, encouraging us to listen and to obey the Holy Spirit's call to the mission of Christ. And we believe that every disciple, every true believer, is called to participate in the mission of making disciples of all nations. So it's not a question of if you're called to be on mission, it's when and where and how. And Pastor Matt challenged us last week to pray about how the Spirit of God might call us out, perhaps to share the gospel with our neighbor, or perhaps to join a church planting initiative or a team that goes out, maybe to support a church planting effort overseas. Whatever the location or whatever the specific role, we all have a part to play. And our mission statement here at Crossroads, maybe you don't know this, but our mission statement here at Crossroads is to help everyone to discover and grow to maturity and mission in Jesus Christ. Everyone, that's you and me, to discover and grow to maturity and mission in Christ. We want you to discover what it means to be conformed on the inside through union with Jesus, to look like him, and then to be sent out on mission to represent him to the world. But to do that, we're going to need power. And that's the theme of our message this morning. The mission is impossible without the power of God working in us and through us. Power is a major theme throughout the entire book of Acts, but it's a primary theme in chapter 14. So just to set a little context for you, if you missed last week, Paul and Barnabas are the characters that we're kind of studying this morning, and, and they are on their first missionary journey uh, throughout Asia and, and, and in, in the world at the time. And, and they are preaching the gospel, they are proclaiming Christ, and God was performing miraculous signs and wonders, we learn in Acts chapter 14, verse 3, that, that God was confirming their message through miracles, through amazing stuff that was happening, and they were preaching so effectively that many Jews and many Greeks were coming to faith in Christ. But as we'll see throughout this series, and this is true of really all times in Christian history, not everybody was happy about that. In fact, there were some that were wanting to hurt and harm Paul and Barnabas, and there were some Jews and some Greeks that raised up this mob that was going to attack them, and so they found out about it, their cohorts found out about it, and sent them off to a Lyconian city called Lystra, and that is where we pick it up in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas kind of had to run away from a very dangerous situation, and they show up in a city called Lystra. Let's listen to what they do. In Lystra, verse 8 of Acts chapter 14, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. And Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet! <laughs> at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. <laughs> Just stop there for a second. Wow! What a display of God's power right away as they come into this new town and Paul begins to, to preach. He sees a guy, and this is more than just facial expressions. Clearly the spirit was working so Paul could see that there was faith in this man, and God compelled him to shout out, be healed, stand up, and he was. Can you imagine if that happened in here right now? Can you imagine that? Does that seem strange to you? Does that happen today? 
Does God still work miracles? Does, does God still do that kind of God stuff? Have you ever wondered that? Maybe you read the Bible and you're like, when do we get to do that? <laughs> you know? When do I get to see God's power displayed in my life like that? Now, before I answer that question, let me, let me give you a really important Bible study principle. And this is not in your bulletin, so you should write this down. It's this Bible study principle, don't make narrative normative. Don't make narrative normative. Let me tell you what that means. Don't make what happens in a narrative in Scripture the normal way that it always has to happen. Meaning just because it happened in this way at this time doesn't mean it always happens in this way at this time. For example... In the Old Testament, there was a guy named Balaam who had a donkey speak to him. Now, in my vast understanding of donkey life, pretty sure that's the only time that's ever happened. Okay? Or in the New Testament, there was a virgin, Mary, who, was, who gave birth to the Messiah. Again, one-time deal. Never happened since, never will. Okay? In the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when many of the believers became Christians, they received the Holy Spirit, and then they began speaking in tongues. Does that mean that every time someone receives the Holy Spirit, they have to speak in tongues? No, I haven't. But there's been a lot of arguments about that in the church, again, because we're taking narrative and making it the normal way. Or in Acts chapter 14, when Paul heals a lame man uh, and, and preaches the gospel. Peter does the exact same thing in Acts chapter 3. He heals a man who had been lame from birth. Does that mean that every time we preach the gospel, somebody should get healed? Not necessarily. Don't make narrative normative. Now, with that caveat aside, what are we to do with this display of God's power? Why don't I see God's power displayed in my life like this? That's a great question to ask yourself. Why don't I see this? Because I read verses like Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Look at what Jesus' last words were to his disciples. He says, but you will receive what? Power. Okay, okay. that was weak. All right. Come on, class. Here we go. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. You will receive power. This is a promise of Jesus as he's leading the earth to his disciples. You will receive power. Now, look at that verse and ask this question. Why? Why do I receive power? Based on that verse, why do you receive it? Do you see it? And you will be my witnesses. You receive power to be his witnesses. To tell the world who he is and what he's done. To be conformed into the image of Christ on the inside, his power working within us. And then to proclaim him on the outside, his power working through us. Perhaps the reason why you don't see God's power in your life is because you're not participating in the mission of God in the world. Let me say that again. Perhaps the reason why we, you and I, don't receive or see God's power in our lives is because we're not participating in the mission of God in the world. We're not actually doing what he's doing. When God's people are on mission, God's power always shows up. And this is true every situation. It might not always be signs and wonders and healing, but his power is always at work. Listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks why he can be so bold and confident to proclaim the gospel and unashamed. This is what he says in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the 
power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The very message we proclaim is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And so Paul says, I'm confident, unashamed even, because the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the power to save. It saved me, and it can save you, and you, and you, and you. And so I proclaim it. So if we want to see God's power at work in our lives, the application for this point is simple. Get on mission. Get on mission to see God's power. Get on mission to see God's power. In Jesus' final words in the Gospel of Matthew, what we have now widely called the Great Commission, commission describing the mission of his disciples, these verses often, um, you know, we know, we quote almost the, go ahead and throw that up there. Uh, these verses often we quote the first section of it and then we kind of leave that last phrase off or we kind of take that last phrase and, and just kind of apply it to other things. But Jesus said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And that's kind of like, great commission, stop there. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And we kind of take that verse and put it on a coffee cup or a pillow or a wall art. Like, sweet, I love Jesus being with me to the end of the age. But why is he with you? Why? Because you're going and making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them. And, and, and this is why he's empowering us. This is why Jesus is with his church. He is with us in the mission. He's empowering us as his disciples. William Carey, maybe you don't know that name, but William Carey is one of the, probably the greatest missionaries of all time. And he is widely called the father of modern missions. He is famous for going to India and, and many of the most amazing mission movements that have happened in the last 200 years, many of them were started by men like William Carey. And William Carey, on May 30th, 1792 preached probably one of the most famous sermons of all time. And it became known as a deathless sermon, the sermon that wouldn't die. Because he said something, he said a phrase in that sermon that became the slogan for the modern missions movement. And it's in your bulletin. This is what he said. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Expect him to show up. Expect his power to be at work in you. Ephesians 3.20 says that God's power, uh, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine through his power that works within us. Expect it. Expect God to do these things in your life. But don't stop there. Attempt great things for God. If I know that God is able, if I know that he will work mightily through me and empower me to be his missionary, then attempt great things for God. Take risks, not haphazardly, but by leading through the Holy Spirit. That Matt shared stories last week of how folks moved from, from Fort Wayne to Denver to be a part of a mission work. And that's crazy, right? It's a great thing to do and risky. But they were willing because they expected God to do great things. And so they took some risks. God was leading and so we follow. Others from Crossroads gave up a year or two of their life to go plant, churches in, in, uh, plant a church in defiance. A great thing. 
What are you willing? Are you expecting God to do something great? Get on mission and see God's power. Now, here's the problem. Don't be surprised, though, when God's power starts to show up in your life that people misunderstand it. And that's exactly what happens to Paul and Barnabas. I'm pretty sure they did not, this is a curveball, pretty sure they didn't see this coming in verse 11. So after they heal this guy, he'd been lame from birth, in verse 11, this is what happens. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. I don't know if that's how they yelled, but I just felt like that was the way it should have been. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. What? When the crowd saw this, they totally misunderstood it. They were amazed, and they wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. They started shouting in their Lyconian language, which Paul didn't know, likely. And they called them Zeus and Hermes. Now, why would they do that? Now remember, these are not Jews. These are not people who know the Bible. They are pagans. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the history of Israel. They don't know any of that kind of stuff. They're Greeks who know Greek mythology. And there was actually a Greek legend, which was written by the Roman poet Ovid, which said that Hermes and Zeus came down previously, the legend says, in human form, and they visited the, the town, the area that they were in. They visited a thousand homes, and they knocked on all the doors, and everybody shut the door in their face. And then there was one elderly couple that welcomed Zeus and Hermes, the human versions of them, in. This is what the legend says. And that home was the only home that wasn't destroyed by a flood. And so that home became, it grew up into this marble-pillared temple with gold roofs, and they became priests of the temple of Zeus. This is what the legend says. So it makes perfect sense why the crowd reacts the way they are. They're like, oh, this is them. They're back. Everybody sacrifice to them so they don't kill us. All right? That's what they're doing. They're afraid. They're wanting to get the blessings of Zeus and Hermes. They don't understand. They viewed God's power and display the only way they knew how. And this is what happens if the Spirit doesn't illumine people's hearts. They, they look for other ways to explain it. Does this still happen today? You bet it does. Think about just the idea of healing. For example, if we say someone got healed, a person who is a naturalist or an atheist might say, well, there's got to be a logical explanation for that, medical explanation, right? Because they're interpreting the facts from their own worldview. Or someone who lives in India who believes in 33 million gods. And you say, hey, believe in Jesus. They're like, sweet, I'll add him into my shrine. They got all these other gods, and they do. Jesus is just a thing that they throw into the rest of their worldview. Or in America, prosperity gospel preachers come around and maybe even do some healing and some signs and wonders. And they say, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And Americans, whose gods are already health and wealth, are like, woo, sweet, I'll believe that. This is what happens. God's power is misunderstood, and sadly, perhaps even some of you have misunderstood. So let me just give you some other signs that maybe you've misunderstood God's power for a moment. This is why some people might chase the feeling they've had at church, maybe from a conference or a worship service, not really believing the true gospel, but looking for that good feeling again, and so God becomes a drug to you. Others might ask for signs and wonders. Maybe you've said this before. If God would just prove it to me and do something miraculous, then I'd believe, just like a lot of the first century folks. And, and God becomes more of a magician doing a magic show than the God to be known. 
Or others might say, oh, yeah, I'll follow God if I get all the benefits but don't have to pay any of the costs. So I don't have to actually repent of sin or deny myself. And so God becomes a cosmic vending machine that if I do these right things and if I pray the right prayers, A7, boom, blessings come. This is how people misunderstood. And Paul and Barnabas are telling these Lyconians, don't, what are you doing? No, 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 no. We're telling you to leave this idea behind. And sometimes, which happens in this case, people we share the gospel with or we minister to or see the power of God overexalt us as humans. Because perhaps your prayers or your comfort or your encouragement brought healing to them. And so now we actually become their functional saviors. For example, let's say somebody says, well, I've had a really rough week. I really just need to call Matt. He'll help me feel better. That's bad. (laughs) I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to call and minister to one another. But if I'm their savior, they're in trouble. (laughs) They're in trouble. They need something more. So what should we do? You know, this happens a lot in America because we're a celebrity-exalting culture. We worship humans in America. You may not think of it as that, but you do. You wear their jerseys. You glorify their their churches. Mega church pastors have huge followings and we follow their every words. Or politicians become our functional saviors because we love humans. We exalt them. Rather than following Jesus, we just follow humans. So what should we do if God's power is misunderstood? What do Paul and Barnabas do? What would you do if people were sacrificing bulls to you? Right? This is what they do. Verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, They tore their clothes and rushed out to the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet now he has not left himself without a testimony. He has shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had a difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So God's power is displayed in this city, and then they misunderstand it. And so Paul and Barnabas move to proclaiming where the real power is. Paul sets the record straight. They are horrified, and so they tear their clothes, which is a sign of grief. And he's like, no, 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 no. We're just men. It's not about us. The power for this man's healing is not from us, but from the living God. We're calling you to leave these other idols. Zeus and Hermes are no gods at all, and none of your other Greek gods out there. He is the one who has made you. He is the one who you desire to know and worship. It is his testimony that we're bringing you today about his son, Jesus Christ. He is not one of many gods. He's the only true and living God. He's not explained away by your naturalistic causes. He's not a cosmic vending machine. He's not a divine therapist. He's the all-powerful, intimately loving, exceedingly holy, maker and giver of salvation and life. This is the God. And he has come. And he's not just a legend in your poetry. He is Jesus. He lived among us, died for us, and rose again. And it's life that is found in his name and his name alone. And that's why this man is alive today and healed. It's not about us. Crossroads, it is not about us. Please, don't misunderstand. 
It's about Jesus. He alone is who we worship. And so if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, here's an application you should live by. Point people past yourself or anything else to Jesus alone. Point people past yourself or anything else to Jesus alone. John the Baptist was a phenomenal preacher of righteousness and repentance. He was Jesus' cousin. Jesus said there was no person on earth that was, no man on earth that was as great as him. He's a phenomenal guy, great preacher. But when Jesus came on the scene, something happened. John was preaching and there was all these crowds following him. But when Jesus came, all the crowds left John and started following Jesus. And so his disciples looked at John and said, John, all of these guys are going with Jesus. What do we got to do about this? <laughs> do we have to like juggle some flaming poodles or something to get them back? You know? And John looks at his disciples and this is what he says in John 3.30. He must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. What a great verse to live by. Isn't that a life verse for you? He must become greater. I must become less. It's all about Jesus. What matters is him, that he gets the glory. It's not my kingdom, it's Jesus' kingdom. And we have really tried to apply that at Crossroads. Perhaps you noticed this. Maybe you've noticed that we have multiple preachers on stage, right? You've noticed we have several different preachers. Nod your head. Are you tracking with me? Okay, yeah. There's not one guy that's preaching here. Because at Crossroads, we're not building Matt Boyer's kingdom. We're not building Matt Strader's kingdom. We're not building Mark Clausing or Kevin Clark's kingdom or any of our other staff. We're building Jesus' kingdom. It's not about any pastor. We're all replaceable. In fact, Kevin Clark said, if I die, they won't retire my job, right? The church will go on because the church has one leader, and it's Jesus Christ, not us. And we try this out. We're applying this principle of Jesus is central, not just here, but in Africa. When we're planting churches in Africa, we're not going there to do it. We're sending and we're raising up indigenous African pastors and leaders to plant the churches in Africa because they're better at it than we are. And we're raising them up. And guess what? When they plant their churches, they might not be FEC churches. <gasps> because it's not about FEC. It's not about crossroads. It doesn't matter if any African pastor knows Matt Boyer's or Matt Strader's name. It's about Jesus. And about extending his kingdom to the nations. That's it. It's about him and him alone. Now... Let me ask you a hard question as we kind of wrap up this idea. What are you pointing your life to? What does your life point to? If your neighbors or your friends watched your life, what would they say is the thing you point people to? Who's the main character of your life? A few weeks ago, Pastor Mark challenged us from Psalm 98 to, to use our instruments to proclaim joy in the Lord, to, to, to glorify God in our platforms or wherever God has put us. And he challenged us even on social media, to use social media to glorify God. Now I know not all of you use social media, but I want to speak to you who do use social media just for a second and listen. If you're a social media user, 
If I scanned your Facebook page or profile, would Jesus be a prominent theme? Would Jesus be the main character? And if you're not a social media user, if I had a transcript of the last month of your conversations, which I don't, don't worry, but if I did, would Jesus be a prominent theme in your home, in your work? Would Jesus be the main character? You know, church, this makes me so sad to say this. But if you were to ask people that are not churched people, that are out there, that don't come in these buildings, if you were to ask them, it, it's sad to me that the, the first name that, that people, when they think of conservative evangelical Christians, the first name that they think of is not Jesus. That's a problem. The first name that comes to their mind when they think of us is not Jesus. And that grieves me. There's something wrong with that. Jesus should be more central to us and his church than he is. Oh, church, may we repent and keep Jesus the focus of our lives. So get on mission to see God's power. Get on mission. And don't be surprised if people think you're weird because now you're always posting about Jesus. It's going to happen. Do whatever you can to point people past yourself and declare and show them that there is only one name where you can be saved. There is only one place where you can find security, and it's not a political leader. It's Jesus alone. He is the only one that can give us security. It's his kingdom is the only kingdom that will not, stay, that will not be shaken and broken. Church, may we magnify Christ and be the Jesus people that we should be and that God's called us to be through his power working in us. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us for the ways that we exalt other saviors. Forgive us for the ways that we magnify other things or maybe we misunderstand your power. And draw us back to you, God. Make us a church that is pure and holy, that is seeking your glory, that, that builds our very lives and existence on Jesus alone. That every single person in this room would discover and grow to maturity and mission in Christ. What would our world be like if the church rose up in this time of turmoil and craziness in our culture? If the church actually rose up and magnified Jesus. That might be surprising <laughs> to our culture and that's good. May Jesus be what we declare. May he be the main character of our church and of our lives. May we keep him central to all that we do. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.